Chapter 3 of Spinning Wheel Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Catalina Watt. Spinning Wheel Stories by Louisa May Alcott. Eli's Education. My turn now, said Walt, as they assembled again after a busy day spent in snowballing statue-making, and tumbling in the drifts that still continued to rise on all sides. "'Here is just the story for you and Jeff. You are getting ready for college, after years of the best schooling, and it will do you good to hear how hard some boys have had to work to get a little learning,' said Grandma, glancing at the slip that Walt drew from the basket, which Aunt Eleanor held out to him, from which Lottie had drawn the story of Tabby's tablecloth. This is a true tale, and the man became famous for his wisdom, as well as much loved and honoured for his virtue, and interest in all good things, added Aunt Eleanor, as she began to read the story of Eli's education. Many years ago, a boy of sixteen sat in a little room in an old farmhouse up among the Connecticut hills, writing busily in a book made of odd bits of paper stitched together, with a cover formed of two thin boards. The lid of a blue chest was his desk, the end of a tallow candle stuck into a potato was his lamp, a mixture of soot and vinegar his ink, and a quill from the grey goose his pen. A Webster's spelling book, Dilworth's new guide to the English tongue, Dable's arithmetic, and the American preceptor stood on the chimney-piece over his head, with the assembly catechism and New Testament in the place of honour. This was his library, and now and then a borrowed Pilgrim's Progress, Fox's Book of Martyrs, or some stray volume, gladdened his heart, for he passionately loved books, and scoured the neighbourhood for miles around to feed this steadily increasing hunger. Every penny he could earn or save went to buy a song or a story from the peddlers, who occasionally climbed the hill to the solitary farmhouse. When others took a noon spell, he read under the trees or by the fire. He carried a book in his pocket, and studied as he went with the cows to and from the pasture, and sat late in his little room, ciphering on an old slate, or puzzling his young brain over some question which no one could answer for him. His father had no patience with him, called him a shiftless dreamer, and threatened to burn the beloved books. But his mother defended him, for he was her youngest, and the pride of her heart. So she let him scribble all over her floors before she scrubbed them up, dipped extra-thick candles for his use, saved every scrap of paper to swell his little store, and firmly believed that he would turn out the great man of the family. His brothers joked about his queer ways, but in his sisters he found firm friends and tender comforters for all his woes. So he struggled along, working on the farm in summer and in a clock shop during the winter, with such brief spells of schooling as he could get between whiles, improving even these poor opportunities, so well that he was letter-writer for all the young people in the neighbourhood. Now, he was writing in his journal very slowly but very well, shaping his letters with unusual grace and freedom, for the wide snowbanks were his copy-books in winter, and on their white pages he had learned to sweep splendid capitals or link syllables handsomely together. This is what he wrote that night, with a sparkle in the blue eyes and a firm folding of the lips that made the boyish face 
resolute and manly. I am set in my own mind that I get learning. I see not how, but my will is strong, and mother hopes for to make a scholar of me. So please God, we shall do it. Then he shut the little book and put it carefully away in the blue chest, with pen and ink, as if they were very precious things, piously said his prayers, and was soon asleep under the homespun coverlet, dreaming splendid dreams, while a great bright star looked in at the low window, as if waiting to show him the road to fortune. And God did please to help the patient lad, only the next evening came an opportunity he had never imagined. As he sat playing over the hills and far away, on the fiddle that he had made himself out of maple wood, with a bow strung from the tail of the old farm horse, a neighbour came in to talk over the fall pork and cider and tell the news. If you want to go over the hills and far away, Eli, here's the chance. I see a man down to Woodtick who was asking if I knew any likely young chap who'd like to go scribbers for a pious book he wants to sell. He'd pay for the job when the names is got and the books gives out. That's rather in your line, boy, so I calculated your daddy would spare you, as you ain't much of a hand at shocking corn nor carting pumice. Ha ha! laughed the big brothers, Ambrose Vitruvius and Junius Solomon, as neighbour Terry spoke with a sly twinkle in his eye. But the sisters, Miranda and Pamela, smiled for joy, while the good mother stopped her busy wheel to listen eagerly. Eli laid down his fiddle, and came to the hearth where the other sat, with such a wide-awake expression on his usually thoughtful face, that it was plain that he liked the idea. "'I'll do it, if father'll let me,' he said, looking wistfully at the industrious man, who was shaving axe handles for the winter wood-chopping after his day's work was over. Well, I can spare you for a week, maybe. It's not time for the clock shop yet, and since you've heard of this, you won't do your chores right, so you may as well see what you can make a peddling. Thank you, sir. I'll give you all I get to pay for my time, began Eli, glowing with pleasure at the prospect of seeing a little of the world for one of his most cherished dreams was to cross the blue hills that hemmed him in and find what lay beyond. "'Guess I can afford to make you all your make this trip,' answered his father, in a tone that made the brothers laugh again. "'Boys, don't pester Eli. Everyone hasn't a call to farming, and it's well to follow the leadings of Providence when they come along,' said the mother, stroking the smooth brown head at her knee for Eli always went to her footstool with his sorrows and his joys. So it was settled, and next day the boy, in his homespun and homemade Sunday best, set off to see his employer and secure the job. He got it, and for three days trudged up and down the steep roads, calling at every house with a sample of his book, the Reverend John Flavel's treatise on keeping the heart. Eli's winning face, modest manner, and earnest voice served him well, and he got many names, for books were scarce in those days, and a pious work was a treasure to many a good soul, who found it difficult to keep the heart strong and cheerful in troublous times. Then the books were to be delivered, and, anxious to save his small earnings, Eli hired no horse to transport his load, but borrowed a stout green shawl from his mother, and with his pack on his back, marched bravely away to finish the task. 
His wages were spent in a new prayer book for his mother, smart handkerchief pins for the faithful sisters, and a good store of paper for himself. This trip was so successful that he was seized with a strong desire to try a more ambitious and extended one, for these glimpses of the world showed him how much he had to learn, and how pleasantly he could pick up knowledge in these flights. What be you a-broodin' over now, boy? Getting ready for the clock shop? It's most time for winter work, and Terry says you do pretty well at putting together, said the farmer, a day or two after the boys' return as they sat at dinner, all helping themselves from the large pewter platter heaped with pork and vegetables. I was wishing I could go south with Gad Upson. He's been twice with clocks and notions and wants a mate. Hoadley fits him out and pays him a good share if he does well. Couldn't I go along? I hate that old shop, and I know I can do something better than put together the inside of cheap clocks. Eli spoke eagerly and gave his mother an imploring look, which brought her to second the motion at once, her consent having been already won. The brothers stared as if Eli had proposed to go up in a balloon, for to them the South seemed farther off than Africa does nowadays. The father had evidently been secretly prepared, for he showed no surprise, and merely paused a moment to look at his ambitious son, with a glance in which amusement and reproach were mingled. When a hen finds she's hatched a duck's egg, it's no use for her to cackle. That duckling will take to the water in spite of her and paddle off, nobody knows where. Go ahead, boy, and when you get enough of junketing round the world, come home and fall to work. Then I may go, cried Eli, upsetting his mug of cider in his excitement. His father nodded, being too busy eating cabbage with a wide-bladed green-handled knife to speak just then. Eli, red and speechless with delight and gratitude, could only sit and beam at his family till a sob drew his attention to Sister Pamela, whose pet he was. Don't, Pam, don't. I'll come back all right and bring you news and all the pretty things I can. I must go. I feel as if I couldn't breathe shut up here winters. I suppose it's wicked, but I can't help it, whispered Eli with his arm around his buxom eighteen-year-old sister who laid her head on his shoulder and held him tight. Daughter, it's sinful to repine at the ways of providence. I see a leading plane in this, and if I can be chirk when my dear boy is going, appears to me you ought to keep a taut rein on your feelings and not spile his pleasure. The good mother's eyes were full of tears as she spoke, but she caught up the end of her short gown and wiped them quickly away to smile on Eli, who thanked her with a loving look. It's so lonesome when he's not here. What will we do evenings without the fiddle, or Eli to read a piece in some of his books while we spin? said poor Pam, ashamed of her grief, yet glad to hide her tears by affecting to settle the long wooden bodkin that held up her coils of brown hair. Obed Finch will be coming along, I guess likely, and he'll read to you out of Eli's book about keeping the art, and you'll find you're gone afore you know it said Junior Solomon, in a tone that made pretty Pam blush and run away, while the rest laughed at her confusion. So it was settled, and when all was ready, the boy came home to show his equipment before he started. A very modest outfit, only two tin trunks slung across his shoulders, filled with jewellery, combs, lace, essences and small wares. 
I hate to have you go, son, but it's better than to be moping to hum, getting desperate for books and riling father. We'll all be working for ye, so be chipper and do well. Keep steady and don't disgrace your folks. The Lord bless ye, my dear boy, and hold ye in the hollow of his hand. Her own rough hand was on his head as his mother spoke, with wet eyes, and the tall lad kissed her tenderly, whispering with a choke in his throat. Goodbye, Mummy dear. I'll remember. Then he tramped away to join his mate, turning now and then to nod and smile and show a ruddy face full of happiness, while the family watched him out of sight with mingled hopes and doubts and fears. Mails were slow in those days, but at length a letter came, and here it is, a true copy of one written by a boy in 1820. Norfolk, Virginia, December 4th. Honoured parents, I write to inform you I am safe here and to work. Our business is profitable, and I am fast learning the quirks and turns of the trade. We are going to the eastern shore of VA, calculating to be gone six weeks. The inhabitants are sociable and hospitable, and you need not fear I shall suffer, for I find many almost fathers and mothers among these good folks. Taking our trunks, we travel through the country, entering the houses of the rich and poor, offering our goods, and earning our wages by the sweat of our brows. How do you think we look? Like two awkward homespun-tugging Yankee peddlers? No, that is not the case. By people of breeding, we are treated with politeness and gentility, and the low and vulgar we do not seek. For my part, I enjoy travelling more than I expected. Conversation with new folks, observing manners and customs, and seeing the world, does me great good. I never met a real gentleman till I came here. Their hospitality allows me to see and copy their fine ways of acting and speaking, and they put the most bashful at ease. Gads like the maids and stays in the kitchen most time. I get into the libraries and read when we put up nights, and the ladies are most kind to me everywhere. I'm so tall, they can't believe I'm only sixteen. They aren't as pretty as our rosy-faced girls, but their ways are elegant and so are their clothes, tell Pam. When I think how kind you were to let me come, I am full of gratitude. I made some verses one day as I waited in a hovel for the rain to hold up. To conduce to my own and parents' good was why I left my home, to make their cares and burdens less and try to help them some. "'Twas my own choice to earn them cash and get them free from debt. "'Before that I am twenty-one, it shall be done, I bet. "'My parents, they have done for me what I for them can never do. "'So if I serve them all I may, sure God will help me through. "'My chief delight, therefore, shall be to earn them all I can, "'not only now, but when that I at last am my own man.'" These are the genuine sentiments of your son, who returns thanks for the many favours you have heaped upon him, and hopes to repay you by his best endeavours. Accept this letter and the enclosed small sum as a token of his love and respect. Tell the girls to write. Your dutiful son, Eli. In reply to this came a letter from the anxious mother, which shows not only the tender, pious nature of the good woman, but also how much need of education the boy had, and how well he was doing for himself. Affectionate son, we was very glad to receive your letter. I feel very anxious about you this winter, and how you are a-doing. 
You cannot know a mother's concern for her boy when he is far away. Do not get into bad habits. Take the Bible for your rule and guide to virtue. I pray for your prosperity in all spiritual and temporal things, and leave you in the care of him who gave you breath and will keep you safe. We are all well, and your father enjoys his health better than last year. I visited Uncle Midad a spell last week, and provided with a horse and shy to ride to Meaton. Mr. Eben Welton took our cow and gave us his old horse. Captain Stephen Harrington was excommunicated last Sabbath. Pamela goes away to learn dressmaking soon. I mistrust Merrindy will take up with Panel Haskell. He is likely and comes frequent. I wish you had been here at Christmas. We had a large company to dinner, and I got some wheat flour and made a fine chicken pie. Eli, I hope you attend meeting when you can. Do not trifle away the holy day in vain pleasures, but live to the glory of God and in the fear of your parents. Father sold the white colt. He was too spirity, and upset Ambrose and nigh broke his head. His nose is still black. Dear son, I miss you every time I set a platter in your place. Is your clothes warm and sufficient? Put your stocking round your throat if sore. Do you get good cider to drink? Take the perineal if you feel wimbly after a long spell of travel. The girls send love. No more now, right soon. Your mother, Hannah Gardner. P.S. Liddy Finch is married. Our pigs give us £900 of prime pork. Many such letters went to and fro that winter, and Eli faithfully reported all his adventures for he had many, and once or twice was in danger of losing his life. On one occasion, having parted from his mate for a day or two, wishing to try his luck alone, our young peddler found himself, late in the afternoon, approaching the dismal swamp. A tempest arose, adding to the loneliness and terror of the hour. The cypresses uprooted by the blast fell now and then across the road, endangering the poor boy's head. A sluggish stream rolled through tangled junipers and beds of reeds, and the fen on either side was full of ugly creatures, lizards, snakes, and toads, while owls scared by the storm flew wildly about and hooted dismally. Just at the height of the tumult, Eli saw three men coming toward him, and gladly hastened to meet them, hoping to have their company, or learn of them where he could find a shelter but their bad faces daunted him, and he would have hurried by without speaking if they had not stopped him, roughly demanding his name and business. The tall stripling was brave, but his youthful face showed him to be but a boy, and the consciousness of a well-filled purse in his pocket made him anxious to escape. So he answered briefly and tried to go on, but two men held him in spite of his struggles, while the third rifled his pockets, broke open his trunks, and took all that was of any value in the way of watches and jewellery. Then they left him, with a cruel joke about a good journey, and made off with their booty. It was the first time poor Eli had met with such a mishap, and as he stood in the rain looking at his wares scattered about the road, he felt inclined to throw himself into the creek and forget his woes there among the frogs and snakes. But he had a stout heart, and soon decided to make the best of it, since nothing could be done to mend the matter. 
gathering up his bedraggled laces, scattered scent bottles, and dirty buttons, pins, and needles. He trudged sadly on, feeling that for him this was indeed a dismal swamp. I told you we'd better stick together, but you wanted to be so dreadful smart and go travelling off alone in the mountain-away places. Might have known you'd get overhauled, Summers. I always did think he was a gumpy light, and now I'm sure on't, was all the comfort Gad gave him when they met, and the direful tale was told. What shall I do now? asked the poor lad. My notions aren't worth selling, and my money's gone. I'll have to pay hardly somehow. You'd better foot it home and go to chopping pumpkins for the cows, or help your man spin. A vow I never did see such a chap for getting into a mess, scolded Gad, who was a true Yankee and made a successful trader even in a small way. We'll sleep on it, said Eli gently, and went to bed very low in his mind. Perhaps a few tears wet his pillow as he lay awake, and the prayers his mother taught him were whispered in the silence of the night, for hope revived. Comfort came, and in the morning his serene face and sensible plan proved to his irate friend that the gump had a wise head and a manly heart after all. Gad, it is just the time for the new almanacs, and Alan wants men to sell em. I thought it was small business before, but beggars mustn't be choosers, so I'm going right off to offer for the job round here. It will do for a start, and if I'm smart, Alan will give me a better chance, maybe. That's a first-rate plan. Go ahead and I'll say a good word for you. Alan knows me and books is in your line, so I guess you'll do well if you keep out them marshes, answered Gad, with great goodwill, having slept off his vexation. The plan did go well, and for weeks the rosy-faced, gentle-voiced youth might have been seen mildly offering the new almanacs at doors and shops and at street corners, with a wistful look in his blue eyes and a courtesy of manner that attracted many customers and earned many a dollar. Several mates, envying his fine handwriting and pitying his hard luck, took lessons in penmanship of him and paid him fairly, whereat he rejoiced over the hours spent at home, lying on the kitchen floor or flourishing splendid capitals on the snowbanks, when his nose was blue with cold and his hands half frozen. When the season for the yellow-covered almanacs was over, Eli, having won the confidence of his employer, was fitted out with more notions and again set forth on his travels, armed this time and in company with his townsmen. He prospered well, and all winter trudged to and fro, seemingly a common peddler, but really a student, making the world his book, and bent on learning all he could. Travel taught him geography and history, for he soon knew every corner of Virginia, looked longingly at the ancient walls of William and Mary College, where Jefferson and Monroe studied, where young George Washington received his surveyor's commission, and in his later years served as Chancellor. In Yorktown he heard all about the siege of 1781, saw Lord Cornwallis's lodgings and the cave named for him, met pleasant people, whose fine speech and manners he carefully copied, read excellent books wherever he could find them, and observed, remembered, and stored away all that he saw, heard, and learned, to help and adorn his later life. By spring he set out for home, having slowly saved enough to repay Hoadley for the lost goods, but as if Providence meant to teach him another lesson, and make him still more prudent, humble, and manly, a sad adventure befell him on his way. While waiting for the coaster that was to take them home, he one day went in swimming with Gad, 
for this was one of the favourite pastimes of the Connecticut boys, who on Saturday nights congregated by the score at a pond called Benson's Pot, and leaped from the springboard like circus tumblers, turning somersaults into the deep water below. It was too early for such sport now. The water was very cold, and poor Gad, taken with cramp, nearly drowned Eli by clinging to his legs as he went down. Freeing himself with difficulty, Eli tried to save his friend, but the current swept the helpless man away, and he was lost. Hurriedly dressing, Eli ran for aid, but found himself regarded with suspicion by those to whom he told his story, for he was a stranger in the place, and certain peddlers who had gone before had left a bad name behind them. To his horror, he was arrested, accused of murder, and would have been tried for his life if Mr. Allen of Norfolk had not come to testify to his good character and set him free. Poor Gad's body was found and buried, and after a month's delay Eli set out again, alone, heavy-hearted, and very poor, for all his own little savings had been consumed by various expenses. Mr. Hoadley's money was untouched, but not increased as he had hoped to have it, and rather than borrow a penny of it, Eli landed barefooted. His boots were so old he threw them overboard, and spent his last dollar for a cheap pair of shoes to wear when he appeared at home, for they were not stout enough to stand travel. So, like Franklin with his rolls, the lad ate crackers and cheese as he trudged through the city and set out for the faraway farmhouse among the hills. A long journey, but a pleasant one, in spite of his troubles, for spring made the world lovely, habit made walking no hardship, and all he had seen in his wanderings passed before him at will, like a panorama full of colour and variety. Letters had gone before, but it was a sad homecoming, and when all was told, Eli said, Now, father, I'll go to work. I've had my wish and enjoyed it a sight, and will go again, but I feel as if I ought to work as long as I can't pay for my time. That's hearty, son, and I'm obliged to ye. Hear what mother's got to say, and then do whichever you prefer, answered the farmer, with a nod toward his wife who, with the girls, seemed full of some pleasant news which they longed to tell. "'I've sold all the cloth we made last winter for a good sum, and father says you may have the spending on it. It'll be enough to pay your board down to Uncle Tillotson's while you study with him, so as to you can be getting ready for college next year. I've sot my heart on and you mustn't disappoint me and the girls,' said the good woman, with a face full of faith and pride in her boy, in spite of all mishaps. Oh, Mummy, how good you be. It don't seem as if I ought to take it, but I do want to go, cried Eli, catching her round the neck in an ecstasy of boyish delight and gratitude. Here Miranda and Pamela appeared, bringing their homely gifts of warm hose and new shirts made from wool and flax grown by father, and spun and woven by the accomplished housewife. A very happy youth was Eli when he again set off to the city, with his humble outfit and slender purse, though father still looked doubtful, and the brothers were more sure than ever that Eli was a fool to prefer dry books to country work and fun. A busy year followed, Eli studying, as never boy studied before, with the excellent minister, who soon grew proud of his best pupil. Less preparation was needed in those days, and perhaps more love and industry went to the work, for necessity is a stern master, and poor boys often work wonders if the spark of greatness is there. Eli had his wish in time, and went to college, mother and sisters making it possible by the sale of their handiwork, 
for the girls were famous spinners, and their mother the best weaver in the country around. How willingly they toiled for Eli, rising early and sitting late, cheering their labour with loving talk of the dear lad's progress, and an unfailing faith in his future success. Many a long ride did that good mother take to the city, miles away, with a great roll of cloth on the pillion behind her to sell, that she might pay her son's college bills. Many a coveted pleasure did the faithful sisters give up, that they might keep Eli well clothed, or send him some country dainty to cheer the studies, which seemed to them painfully hard and mysteriously precious. Father began to take pride in the ugly duckling now, and brothers to brag of his great learning. Neighbours came in to hear his letters, and when vacation brought him home, the lads and lasses regarded him with a certain awe, for his manners were better, his language purer than theirs, and the new life he led refined the country boy till he seemed a gentleman. The second year he yielded to temptation and got into debt. Being anxious to do credit to his family, of whom he was secretly a little ashamed about this time, he spent money on his clothes, conscious that he was a comely youth with a great love of beauty, and a longing for all that cultivates and embellishes character and life. An elegant gentleman astonished the hill-folk that season, by appearing at the little church in a suit such as the greatest rustic dandy never imagined in his wildest dreams. The tall white hat with rolling brim, Marseille vest with watch-chain and seals festooned across it, the fine blue coat with its brass buttons, and the nankeen trousers strapped over boots so tight that it was torture to walk in them. Armed with a cane and the well-gloved hand, an imposing brooch in the frills of the linen shirt, Eli sauntered across the green, the observed of all observers, proudly hoping that the blue eyes of a certain sweet Lucinda were fixed admiringly upon him. The boys were the first to recover from the shock, and promptly resented the transformation of their former butt into a city beau, by jeering openly and affecting great scorn on the envied splendour. The poor jackdaw, somewhat abashed at the effect of his plumes, tried to prove that he felt no superiority by being very affable, which won the lasses but failed to soften the hearts of the boys, and when he secured the bell of the village for the Thanksgiving drive and dance, the young men resolved that pride should have a fall. Arrayed in all his finery, Eli drove pretty Lucinda in a smart borrowed wagon to the tavern where the dance was held. Full of the airs and graces he had learned at college, the once bashful, awkward Eli was the admired of all eyes, as he pranced down the long contradance in the agonising boots, or played threading the needle without the least reluctance on the part of the blushing girls, to pay the fine of a kiss when the players sung the old rhyme. The needle's eye no one can pass, the thread that runs so true, it has caught many a pretty lass, and now it has caught you. But his glory was short-lived for some enemy maliciously drew out the linchpin from the smart wagon, and as they were gaily driving homeward over the hills, the downfall came, and out they both went to the great damage of Eli's city suit and poor Lucinda's simple finery. Fortunately, no bones were broken, and picking themselves up, they sadly footed it home, hoping the mishap would remain unknown, but the rogues took care that Eli should not escape, and the whole neighbourhood laughed over the joke, for the fine hat was ruined and the costly coat split down the back in the ignominious tumble. Great was the humiliation of the poor student, for not only was he ridiculed, but Lucinda would not forgive him, and the blue eyes smiled upon another. Worst of all, he had to confess his debts and borrow money of his father to pay them. He meekly bore the stern rebuke that came with the hard-earned dollars, 
the sight of the tears his mother shed, even while she comforted him, filled him with remorse. He went back to his books in his homespun suit, a sadder and a wiser boy, and fell to work as if resolved to wash out past errors and regain the confidence he had lost. All that winter the wheels turned and the loom jangled, that the rolls of cloth might be increased, and never was the day too cold, the way too long, for the good mother's pious pilgrimage. That summer a man came home to them, shabby enough as to his clothes, but so wonderfully improved in other ways, that not only did the women-folk glow with tender pride, but father and brothers looked at him with respect, and owned at last there was something in Eli. "'No vacation for me,' he said. "'I must work to pay my debts, and as I am not much of use here, I'll try my old plan and peddle some money into my empty pockets.' It was both comic and pathetic to see the shoulders that had worn the fine broadcloth burdened with a yoke, the hands that had worn kid gloves grasping the tin trunks, and the dapper feet trudging through dust and dew in cowhide boots. But the face under the old straw hat was a manlier one than that which the tall beaver crowned, and the heart under the rough vest was far happier than when the gold chain glittered above it. He did so well that when he returned to college his debts were paid, and the family faith in Eli restored. That was an eventful year, for one brother married, and one went off to seek his fortune, the father mortgaging his farm to give these sons a fair start in life. Eli was to be a minister, and the farmer left his fortunes in the hands of his wife, who, like many another good mother, was the making of the great man of the family, and was content with that knowledge, leaving him the glory. The next year, Eli graduated with honour, and went home to be received with great rejoicing, just twenty-one, and a free man. He had longed for this time, and planned a happy, studious life, preparing to preach the gospel in the little parsonage of his own. But suddenly all was changed. Joy turned to sorrow, hope to doubt, and Eli was called to relinquish liberty for duty, to give up his own dreams of a home, to keep a roof over the heads of the dear mother and faithful sisters. His father died suddenly, leaving very little for the women-folk besides the independence that lay in the skill of their own thrifty hands. The elder brothers could not offer much help, and Eli was the one to whom the poor souls turned in their hour of sorrow and anxiety. "'Go on, dear, and don't pester yourself about us. We can find food and firing here as long as the old farm is ours. I guess we can manage to pay off the mortgage by and by.' It don't seem as if I could turn out after living here ever since I was married, and poor father so fond on't. The widow covered her face with her apron, and Eli put his arms about her, saying manfully as he gave up all his fondest hopes for her dearest sake, Cheer up, mother, and trust to me. I should be a poor fellow if I allowed you and the girls to want, after all you've done for me. I can get a school, and earn instead of spend. Teaching and studying can go on together. I'm sure I shouldn't prosper if I shirked my duty, and I won't. The three sad women clung to him, and the brothers, looking at his brave, bright face, felt that Eli was indeed a man to lean on and to love in times like this. Well, thought the young philosopher, the Lord knows what's best for me, and perhaps this is a part of my education. I'll try to think so, and hope to get some good out of a hard job. In this spirit he set about teaching, and prospered wonderfully, for his own great love of learning made it an easy and delightful task to help others, and as he had longed to be helped. His innocent and tender nature made all children love him, and gave him a remarkable power over them, so when the first hard months were past, and his efforts began to bear fruit, 
he found that what had seemed an affliction was a blessing, and that teaching was his special gift. Filial duty sweetened the task, a submissive heart found happiness in self-sacrifice, and a wise soul showed him what a noble and lovely work it was to minister to little children, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. For years Eli taught, and his school grew famous, for he copied the fashions of other countries, invented new methods, and gave himself so entirely to his profession that he could not fail of success. The mortgage was paid off, and Eli made frequent pilgrimages to the dear old mother, whose staff and comfort he still was. The sisters married well, the brothers prospered, and at thirty, the schoolmaster found a nobler mate than pretty Lucinda, and soon had some little pupils of his very own to love and teach. There his youth ends, but after the years of teaching he began to preach at last, not in one pulpit, but in many all over the land, diffusing good thoughts now as he had peddled small wares when a boy, still learning as he went, still loving books and studying mankind, still patient, pious, dutiful and tender, a wise and beautiful old man, till at eighty Eli's education ended. End of chapter 3 Recording by Catalina Watt London If you enjoy sci-fi, please visit my blog, seeinthefuture.blogspot.co.uk